If you haven't already, I'd ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And after this all took place, it says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This morning, our sermon title is Threats and Thrones. Threats and Thrones. Undoubtedly, you've heard the saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie ever. Because they will hurt you. But when we think of a text like this, and when we think of all of history, even human history, we are always waging war against God, our Creator. From our first parents, Adam and Eve, God gave a clear decree for them to obey, and they disobeyed. Yet, while they took upon themselves to place themselves upon the throne of their life, this remains true. God is Lord of all. God is God alone. So when we think about this text, which Brian just read for us a good portion of, I want us to see that the God who providentially propels expansion of the gospel, because that's what we've been looking at from the beginning of Acts chapter 1, Jesus promises to his disciples that they will receive power, and the command is to stay until they've received power, and then they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that this whole mission of the gospel is going to expand. Right? God pronounced it. It will be so. So as we've gotten to this point from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 11, we've seen this expansion taking place, and we've seen the powerful way in which it does so. And so as we see this, we see that the God who providentially propels expansion of the gospel in our particular text this morning will not be hindered by any other. The God who providentially propels expansion of the gospel will not be hindered or stopped by any other. And we need to be reminded of that because so often we can think it's not really progressing. It's not really doing what we want it to do. Maybe perhaps we need to be reminded of the parable of the sower, where Jesus tells us the seed takes a while. The farmer goes and he sows the seed, but it's the Lord who gives the growth. And later at the end of Mark chapter 4, we see that the farmer goes to bed, he rises and he wakes, and the seed grows, and he knows not how. Maybe we need to be comforted that when the results aren't the way that we want them to be, that God is still providentially at work. 
and his gospel, his mission, his expansion will not be hindered by any other. Not Herod in AD 60, not anyone in our current day will hinder this gospel expansion. For the Lord knows the end from the beginning. And he will see it to completion. All of history is culminating in the finality of Jesus ruling and reigning on his throne in the new heavens and the new earth. So whatever threat may come in our day, whatever pseudo throne some leader seems to be sitting on, we can affirmatively say with bold assurance, Jesus is on his throne. And he will reign forever. So, the God who providentially propels expansion of the gospel will not be hindered or stopped by any other. And the reason we need to know this is that we must rely exclusively on the Lord for salvation and multiplication. We must rely exclusively on the Lord for salvation and multiplication. I want us, as we go through this narrative, to see four progressions. First, we'll see a cosmic contrast in verses 1 through 5. Then we'll see divine deliverance in verses 6 through 11. Third, we'll see a surprise guest in verses 12 through 19. And lastly, we'll see humiliation and multiplication in verses 20 through 25. I think I'm a little angsty uh, with not being in the pulpit for the past two weeks. So I'm pretty fired up. So we'll see what that means at all. A cosmic contrast. A cosmic contrast. As Brian just read for us, the text picks up with this uh, horrible villain, of Herod. And the threat of Herod is that he's just murdered a Christian. He killed, verse 2, James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is not just a threat of power and authority unrealized. This is very real. Hey, I've already done this. Just as Peter is in prison, Herod has the same intention to carry out this same end for Peter. Yet, the text continues, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, and this was during the days of unleavened bread. Luke, our author, reminds us, You you may be thinking, why is this there? Luke reminds us that it was unlawful for them to kill anyone during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There was a timetable for this to take place. You think about the providential nature and working of our God, that this is just some mere happenstance, that King Herod cannot kill Peter? Let's continue. He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Herod is desiring to kill Peter. He's just waiting. He's biding his time to be able to carry this out. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Church, one reason that we can stand in the face of threats or a false kingdom being waged in front of us is that while authority is very real on this earth, we're reminded that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the powers and principalities that rule the air, right? We have a very real enemy, and his name is the devil, and he's active, and he's cunning. But in the midst of these very real pressures, we have the same ability as the New Testament church to bring these earnest prayers and petitions before the one who sits on an even bigger throne. I love the scene in Elf. You hopefully know where I'm going with this. But when Elf has this encounter with uh, fake bogus Santa, and what does he tell him? He tells him, you sit on a throne of lies. Every other, that's right, every other principality and authority that we see sits on a throne of lies. There is a throne with a ruler whose name is Jesus, and he is the king above all kings. He is Lord of Lords, and as Derek preached a few weeks ago, that he is Lord of our lives as well. That if we have trusted in him, he is our Lord, which means he has authority to say that we are to do whatever he says. And what he says is always in accordance to his word. Is he Lord? Is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of your prayer life? Where in the midst of these threats, you go to him with earnest prayers. We might not have as grave of a scenario as our friend Peter being imprisoned, about ready to be just waiting for the next day to tick over to be brought out before the Jews and to be killed. Maybe that's not what we are facing. But the reality is that we ought to take earnest prayers before the Lord. Because in the midst of these threats and in the midst of these many thrones, we have a God who's enthroned on high. And He bids us to come. And so that's what they do. While this threat is being breathed out on the New Testament church, the church is taking earnest prayer to God. I hear very often this sentiment that God helps those who help themselves. If you've never heard that, it's the sentiment that says, let's discredit prayer and let's just get to work. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and God will honor that. Well, in the midst of that false sentiment is the church doing what the church is called to do, to plead and petition with the Lord of all creation to save their friend. That's what we do when we see that there is this cosmic contrast between earthly rulers, earthly kings, and an eternal king, and an eternal ruler. But we don't just see a cosmic contrast. We then see this divine deliverance. All Herod's looking for is for the page of the calendar to turn. And he will take Peter, and he will bring him to the Jews, 
the same thing that took place with James, the same thing that took place with Jesus, he will have him killed. But the Lord has other plans. The Lord has other plans for Peter. And verse 6 picks up, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, you think that's an interesting statement? I think it is. On that very night, as if it ought to surprise us. We ought not to ever be surprised at the providential working of God. Turn, turn to Galatians, and you see that at the proper time, at the fullness of time, God sent His Son. God always works in the precise timing that He desires. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Take note of the context. On that very night, sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. That ought to make you think that Peter was some crazy rebel. That Herod wanted to make sure that all of the preparations were there pointing to the end of the Apostle Peter's life. <laughs> and behold, verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and awoke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, right? We've already heard that the two chains have been released, right? So two chains, two guards, sentries, okay? When they'd passed the first and the second guard, all right, chains are gone, guard is gone, guards are not an issue anymore, and now we're just waiting for the sentries that are on the other side of the gate. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. What a peculiar way to say that. Because you look at the working in this narrative, and you see this working of Herod. I'm going to put two chains on your arms. I'm going to put two guards on either side. I'm going to put sentries out in front of the door so that there will be no way for you to get out. But there is an angel of the Lord. But there's a gate going into the city, but it opened of its own accord. I love, I don't know that it's uh, sarcasm or what it is, but I love in Scripture where it says things like, and it opened of its own accord. No, the Lord has been sovereignly working in this situation by sending the angel of the Lord to release Peter from prison and then to open of its own accord the gate. Things don't happen like that. The Lord opens the gate. Okay, this is a divine deliverance that from the intention of Herod to keep Peter in prison, the Lord's intention is to deliver him. Man, divine deliverance. So the, the gate opens of its own accord. I still think that's hilarious. 
of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure. (laughs) Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. One, it was already clear to Peter that the end game was his death. But what was not clear to him was the divine deliverance that was at hand in delivering him. I love that. Now I'm sure. (laughs) How dim-witted we can be to discredit the working hand of the Lord, not only in Peter's life, but in our own life. We're so quick to see the opposition that comes against us and say, man, we're under attack. This is not good. This is awful. But we're so slow at being able to see the Lord's hand of blessing and deliverance in our life. So I'm not saying there aren't attacks. I'm not saying that uh, the things you're going through aren't difficult. But what I am saying is just as much as you look at that, look to the way at which the Lord is guiding, directing, blessing you. First and foremost, through His Son, Jesus. This is a divine deliverance that counters the intention of Herod and allows for Peter to be delivered. From this deliverance, we see that he is now a surprise guest. Remember where the Christians are. That while Peter's in prison, the church is making supplication, an earnest prayer for him uh, to God through prayer. So, here is this surprise guest. Could you imagine a full home? You can't. Can you imagine a full house of friends and church members that say, um, say we're made known of a missionary, that their family has been taken captive. And so you're, you're there and you're praying and you're pleading that the Lord would deliver them. And all of a sudden, that's what happens with Peter and this church, that as they're praying for the Lord to work and to act as their Lord, they know if anyone can do this, you can. So Lord, we're going to gather because where any two or more are gathered in your name, there you will be also. Lord, there's power in this. We're going to do this. And in the midst of their prayer, after Peter had realized that he's been delivered, He went to the house of Mary, verse 12, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, We're not familiar with these kinds of gates of entry and things like this. You don't have a peephole in first century Palestine. You don't have a ring doorbell. You you can't see who's on the other side. But what we're told in Scripture is that Rhoda recognized Peter's voice. What an interesting point. We don't know who Rhoda is, other than that she's a servant girl in the home of this Christian family. 
But what we know about Rhoda is that she sat under the teaching of the Apostle Peter enough to be able to recognize his voice. What is Peter's mission? Peter's mission is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We've seen multiple sermons of Peter's already to this point that proclaim Christ as Messiah, as Savior, and as Lord. And here Rhoda recognizes his voice, knowing that in the other room, everybody else is praying for this very person. And in her joy, the text reminds us that she runs to go and tell him. And it makes perfect sense. Guys, you will never believe who's at the door. No, like really, you'll never believe it. Who is it, Rhoda? Spit it out. Who is it? It's Peter. It's the Apostle Peter. He's at the door. And you'd think that their first response would have been, well, go let him in. What are you doing? But they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, I wish Luke would have said, and when they finally opened the daggone door, but when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, right? Dude just broke out of prison, been delivered from prison by the Lord. All he did was just walk. Been delivered from prison where he was uh, delivered from what would have been a surefire persecution, martyrdom, death. And they're like, oh my gosh, Peter, you're here. This is incredible. We were just praying for you. Rhoda just told us all this thing. And he's like, guys, we're still here. <laughs> you're so excited to see the work of God in this moment. Being able to bring uh, reality to their faith, right? Faith in prayer is, Lord, you can deliver Peter. Lord, please deliver Peter. Their faith has now become sight. And what a joy it is to be able to see the person that they have been laboring in earnest prayer for at their door. A surprise guest, to say the least. And when they shut up, he described to them, that's not scripture, by the way. After he motioned to them to be quiet, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Friends, what amazing joy in the face of opposition. Think of the mourning that they were in the midst of as Herod had just put James one of the inner disciples. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who say, let's just, you want us to call down fire on the Samaritans? You want us to do that? Because we'll do that. Can we do that? And Jesus says, are you really able to take this cup? At another instance, James and John are vying for the seat at the table. Will you put us on our your right and your left. 
James has endured this cup, the cup of persecution for the sake of the gospel. And so the church is in the midst of this mourning experience. They're prepping for another loss of this great apostle Peter, and their mourning has been turned to joy because the Lord has delivered him. And so Peter says, go and tell this to James, that is James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to the brothers. Guys, the church needs to be encouraged by this. That while Herod, the, the king of our area, was trying to lay siege on the church, trying to breathe threats on the church, trying to establish his own throne, God is still God. And he is providentially propelling the expansion of the good news. Go and tell this to James and to the brothers. Right? We have no need to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? But, after telling this to the disciples, he then goes to another place in verses 18 and 19, say that now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Right? Let's just suppose that Peter uh, is delivered in this nighttime deliverance, given that the angel of the Lord shone a light in the cell. The next morning comes, and everything is fine and peachy there in the prison, except for the very fact that where the two chains were securing a man, and the two guards were sleeping on either side, and the sentries were outside, and the gate was locked, none of those things are the same anymore. It says, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The inference is that he, in fact, did kill these soldiers. So we see a cosmic contrast between Herod and the Lord of all. We see this divine deliverance of Peter being delivered from this jail cell. And then we see a surprise guest at the home of the disciples and that Peter comes knocking on the door. And lastly, we see this humiliation and multiplication where the text picks up with Herod being the strong and bold, authoritative, sitting on the throne, laying siege to the church, just killed James, getting ready to kill Peter. We see that in the end, it will be his humiliation. It will be his end. But for the gospel, fueled by the providential, powerful activity of the sovereign Lord of all, it will see multiplication. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. Let's think real quick. Persuaded the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace from this king in a manipulative sense. 
it would be very easy to read into this that they don't really honor Herod, but rather that as Josephus' account writes, they are actually just flattering him. They're trying to appease him so that he will continue to provide for them their food. Verse 21, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Let me read from Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, out of his antiquities. On the second day of which shows he put on a garment made wholly of silver. Josephus is there. Okay? He put on a garment made wholly of silver and, a, and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked that intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto referenced thee only as a man, yet shall we own thee as superior to mortal nature." Not the voice of a man, but the voice of a God. Herod didn't deny this vanity. Herod did not deny this ascription of being a God. And upon that pride, he's humiliated. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Listen to what Josephus says. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was a messenger of ill tidings, as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and fell into a deepest sorrow. And a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. Friends, in our pride, we will be humiliated. The Lord says in Isaiah chapter 48 that He alone is God. He's a jealous God. He will share His glory with no other. So friends, when we see threats and we see these thrones that are dueling for the authority of our God, know that in the end, it will only bring about our humiliation. Any God that we serve, any person that we serve, any ulterior thing, any secondary thing other than God, will end in our humiliation. Only the worship of the Lord. 
But in the midst of Herod's death, after just being ascribed to be a god, you want to know one of the like bare requirements for being a god is? It's not giving a good speech. So when they say, you're, you're a god, and Herod's like, I am, aren't I? It's not that. One of the essences of being a god is that you'll have no end. You're eternal. So the very thing that puffed up Herod in his pride ended up being his humiliation. But while this humiliation takes place for those who sit on a false throne and who sit in a way trying to hinder the gospel, God, who providentially and powerfully works, will not be hindered or stopped by any other. Just as he providentially and divinely delivers Peter from prison, he also divinely and providentially ends the life and reign of Herod. And in the face of that, we are told in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Friends, there will be threats. There will be thrones that wage war against our God that wage war against our Christianity. There already are. Don't be mistaken. Don't be misled to think that it is not so. The psalmist reminds us, why do the nations rage? Why do the enemies of the Lord plot in vain? They do so waging war, not against you, not against us, They do so because they're waging war against God's anointed. They're waging war against the king who sits enthroned on high and will not be stopped or thwarted or hindered by anything. No, King Herod won't stand in the way. King Herod will not hinder the gospel. For the word of God increased and multiplied. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Friends, the God who providentially propels expansion of the gospel will not be hindered or stopped by any other. So, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, the call to you is to rely exclusively to rely on Christ alone as your Lord for your salvation and for your growth. The same is true for us as a church, that we rely on Christ alone for our salvation and for our growth. So friends, what is it that might be stirring in you a desire to not trust the Lord more fully? What throne or threat is it that's coming to supersede and to cause you to cast your eyes from Christ downward? Right? Because when Peter, St. Peter, when Peter gets out on the water and he sees Jesus in the middle of the storm, when he looks at Jesus, he's able to walk towards Jesus. But the moment that he looks down and takes his eyes off of Jesus, things don't go super well. 
What is that for us this morning? What throne or threat are you listening to more than King Jesus? The one who sits enthroned on high. Maybe it's not necessarily that you're listening to other things, but maybe it's just that you're not listening to Jesus. You're just kind of, hey, I I know a lot of these things, so it'll just kind of like wash over me by osmosis. It doesn't work like that. Listening to Christ through His Word, through time of personal devotion, by acknowledging Him day after day, moment after moment, as Lord, as Savior, to guide your life in every way. When we look at that throne, when we look to Him, He will be our aim. He will be our focus. May we do that this week. May we do that today. I'd encourage you to think of ways, how can I keep my gaze on the throne that sits on high? Right? Because Paul in Colossians says, think on things that are above, where Christ is. Don't think about earthly things. Think on things that are above where Christ is. We think of our King and His total authority over all things. And we think of His throne, which encompasses all things. We can trust in Him with our lives and with our everything.